Oh, come on. Good morning, Go Church family. How you feel today? You feel good? You look fantastic. Come on. Look at somebody right near you and say, have you lost weight since the last time I saw you? Go ahead and tell them that. And then tell the person that you didn't decide to tell first. Say, I think you lost some weight too. What a joy it is to see everybody looking around this auditorium. Never, ever take for granted the opportunity we have to gather together. And as you heard a moment ago, God is growing His church and we're planning to make room for you and your family and friends. And so God bless you. Thanks for being a part of Go Church. God is here and He is moving. And I'm excited to see what God does in your life and in my life today. If you're sitting at this campus in this auditorium, this is our broadcast campus from this location. We live stream our gatherings to our West Side Atlanta campus. Come on. And let me tell you, they're electric on the West Side. And so we greet all of you this morning, our Montgomery County, Maryland location. They're in Germantown, Maryland. We say good morning to you all. They're on fire there too. So God is just moving. And then everybody watching online, whoever you are, wherever you're watching from, we say God bless you. So come on, every campus, every location, can we greet one another? Come on, let it be like it's the first time you've ever done it. Very good. And then uh, I always love to give uh, honor to the brave men and women that are a part of our military community and family, the veterans of military. Thank you for serving. Those who are current active duty, thank you for serving. And then also, if you're a first responder, your job puts you on the front line to serve and protect. We just like to take a moment on every Sunday just to honor and acknowledge you, just to show you some love and appreciation. So every campus, if you have been in the military, you are in the military, or you're a first responder, would you put your hand up just for a moment? And then can we just show some love? Come on, keep it up for a second. Thank you. 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 Come on, keep clapping. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Every campus. Oh, come on, somebody thank God for these men and women. Love you, love you, love you. We talk a lot about what makes Go Church so special, and, uh, and it really is you, the people, and also just the way that God has given us great favor. There's a lot of different values uh, and, and kind of characteristics that are unique to Go Church. Now, we're not in competition with any other church we're not here to compete with any other church. We're here to complement other churches. We're about the work of the kingdom. Can you say amen? amen? But what does make Go Church special? There's a lot of things, but one in particular that I never want you to take for granted, and hear my heart for just a moment, is the diversity of the people that call Go Church home. It is an honor and a privilege that as a white pastor, come on, that you allow me into your spiritual journey to just speak into the lives of our African-American brothers and sisters, our Hispanic and Latino and Latina brothers and sisters, uh, Asian brothers and sisters, and, and, and. So a couple of times a year, we pause to recognize uh, different ethnicities that are part of the Go Church family. At the beginning of the year, we pause during Black History Month to just show appreciation to our African-American brothers and sisters. But last week began for one month, Hispanic and Latin Heritage Month. Come on now. Let's go. So um, I just want to say, and I've, I've been practicing this. Come on, so hang in there. So I just want to say to all, all of my Latino y Latina hermanos y hermanas, Dios te bendiga en el nombre de Padre, Hijo y Espíritu Santo. Get you some of that. If you have no idea what I said, welcome to the club. Come on now. 
Hey, I just want to say, and I mean this in all sincerity, thank you to our Hispanic and Latin brothers and sisters for sharing your culture with us. Beyond just the food, and I mean that genuinely, thank you for letting us see how beautiful your community really is, and we honor you today, and we celebrate you today. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to clap and to show some appreciation, and if you don't clap, that community will throw the chancla at you. Come on now. So, all right, come on, give it up for your brothers and sisters. There you go. All right. Good. Very good. Week number three, final part of this series. I, this is my heart and my prayer. I hope you've enjoyed this series by way of listening and learning as much as I've enjoyed this series by learning and teaching. And so if you've missed any part of uh, the three weeks of this particular series and conversation, go back online. Please go online. I think a lot of us need this message, giving us hope not to lose our faith. And maybe you've got family and friends that need this message, encouraging them not to lose their faith and not to lose hope in the Lord. And so go back and listen. I'm going to pray for us today. We're going to get into the final installment of this series. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit speak through me and to you and that you receive everything that God has planned for you. I don't want to leave today the same way that I came. Can I get an amen from somebody? I want God to do a work in me. So one of the ways I like to begin our prayer time together on a Sunday is just out of respect and honor to the Lord, worship to the Lord, every head bowed, every eye closed. You've had a busy week. Maybe you've got a, a busy upcoming week. I know for Kimberly and I, my wife and I, our family, our staff, our team, our volunteers, we've had a busy week with the marriage conference. But I know that God wants to speak to us now. And I don't want our minds to be distracted with fatigue, exhaustion, or what's coming. So let's take 10 seconds here, a moment of just reflection, meditation, inviting the Lord to speak to us, removing distraction, and then I'll pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, overwhelmed with great emotion today. Couldn't stop crying during that last worship song that we did. Just thankful for the stories of lives that are being changed and for what you're doing in my life. I'm standing up here today with great humility. I carry a lot of flaws and uh, a lot of insecurities. But I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit, and I'm grateful that you are here. So Lord, thank you for just uh, chiseling away at my heart and meeting me at the point of my need. My heart today as I preach this message is that I could invite somebody into a relationship with God the same way that I was invited in. I can't save anybody, I can't deliver anybody, I can't change anybody, but you can. So I'm inviting you, Holy Spirit, to have your way today. And I pray that you would use me. And I'm genuinely asking that the cross of Jesus go before me. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be promoted. I don't want to be famous, Lord. I want you to be famous. I want your church to be glorified. I want you to be honored. You've given me one job today. And that is if we lift up the name of Jesus, you'll draw the people to you. So I lift you up, Lord. And I magnify you because you're faithful. Have your way. And I thank you that your word never returns void. In the precious, sweet name of Jesus. And together everybody said amen and amen. We've clapped for a lot of reasons, for a lot of good people. But can we honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Come on here. Come on, church.
Oh, come on, somebody clap like you love them. Come on. Woo. The whole idea of this particular sermon series is based off of a phenomenon that is sweeping across American evangelicalism, especially in our Western society and culture. This movement is known as deconstructionism or, or deconstruction. And really the whole thought behind deconstruction is it's where people begin to not only rethink their faith, but sadly many begin to reject their faith. I've given you each week kind of a, a working definition of, of deconstruction because some of you, you, you've gone through the process of deconstruction. Some of you might be in the middle of deconstructing. Or maybe you've got a family member or loved one that has deconstructed, meaning they once had a relationship with Christ and, and now they kind of walked away from the Lord. I want to say this with great respect to those that find themselves in a different position on the, the faith journey. But I'm calling home, in the mighty name of Jesus, prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. I'm believing that God is moving and the Holy Spirit is moving and that people that have turned their heart away from God will turn their heart back to God. Does anybody need to speak that over a child or a grandchild? Come on, I'm believing that. Now, here's, here's the definition. This is just kind of my, my definition because deconstruction is not simply defined because in a, a different context it has potentially a different meaning. But whenever someone begins to deconstruct, it starts with questioning and then doubting uh, their faith. Those two first parts aren't always dangerous. I've told you in week number one that questions and even doubts, it's not really deconstruction, that's discipleship. You should be having questions. You should be searching the scripture for answers. You shouldn't be taking my word as the final authority and the final word. Don't take everything that I say to be true, although it's not my plan to lie to you, but you should study the scripture to show thyself approved. Does that make sense? So don't let the enemy make you think just because you have questions or just because you have doubts that you can't have faith. Great questions lead to great faith. And some of the greatest questions that I've had and some of the most difficult doubts that I've had, I've leveraged to bring me into a place with God that I'd never been before. Okay? But it's not just questioning and doubting, but the greatest challenge with deconstruction is, is that ultimately people reject certain aspects of the Christian faith, like like the church, the, the gathering together of the, the people, and, and there's great value in this. We need this community. And so some people, when they deconstruct, they say, well, I believe in God, but, but I don't believe in the church. Or they end up rejecting faith in itself. Now, last Sunday, I showed you, I mean, in real time, from Pew Research Center, that this isn't some foreign concept, that we're not approaching deconstruction. We're living in the reality uh, the modern-day reality of people that are leaving the Christian faith in waves. And I gave you, and I won't do it again because I don't, I don't have the time, so go back and listen if you missed it. But I gave you Pew Research's four hypothetical modules that dictate or potentially determine where religion in America will be in the next 50 years. And it is alarming. It's alarming. Now, when you look at the hypothetical modules, you can summarize all of their data into one thought, and this is the truth. A surge of people are leaving Christianity. And they're leaving Christianity to become atheist, meaning they don't believe in God at all, or agnostic, meaning there could be a God, but we're not going to push that on ourselves or anybody else. Or they're finding themselves become a part of a group called the nuns, 
Now, again, that's not the Catholic nun. That is, I identify as none in my religious affiliation. And so we're here, we're living in the times. Now, again, a lot of you heard last Sunday, but I, I gave you a thought that maybe the deconstruction that we're experiencing in our, our, our country, could it be connected to the great apostasy or the great falling away that the Bible tells us is going to happen before the inevitable return of Jesus? I don't know what you believe. But I believe that every prophecy in God's word has been fulfilled, including the one prophecy yet to be fulfilled, which is the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. So you don't, by the way, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that prophetic word. So before Jesus comes back, though, there has to be a great falling away, and maybe we're experiencing that now. And then, of course, every Sunday I've given you six factors of deconstruction, three of them being external and then three being internal. Let's visit these for just a few minutes and then I'll, I'll sit on one of them specifically for the remainder of our time. So three external factors of deconstruction. The first one is, let's talk about low discipleship or cheap grace. So again, my thought on this would be that most people that deconstruct their faith, they turn their heart away from God Maybe they were never really saved to begin with. So the great theologian Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. And this is what he says. That people love the idea of this community. And there's great power and, and need for this community. But they don't want confession. They love the idea of heaven. And I, I hope we all get to heaven. Come on now. But they really don't want holiness. So they want grace and they want mercy, but we really don't want true repentance that requires us to turn away from our lives. So Jesus, you can, you can be Lord as long as I'm still king. Or ladies, Jesus, you can be Lord as, as long as you're still queen. And there's an old saying, and I think it's found somewhere in the Bible, that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Come on now, somebody. Like you, you can't. You can't be halfway in with Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you from my mouth. What a thought. And, and listen, you can't be a lukewarm Christian. God wants you to go all in with him. And so some people that deconstruct is because they were barely hanging on to begin with. And then, of course, there are secular ideologies. This is, this is far extremism of secularism. And, and the primary objective, the, the primary goal of secularism is to eradicate faith, to abolish religion altogether. And we're seeing this happen through pop culture, uh, through the data, data footprint, social media footprint that's infiltrating, you know, uh, our hearts and our minds. We see it in the education system. I told you last week, we are for teachers, not against teachers and this may not be in your classroom, but we see an education from institutions to universities all the way down to, to elementary, middle school, and high school instruction that the secular ideology is being educated into our children, pushing them farther and farther away from God. Between the ages of 4 and 14, 4 and 14, Westside, Germantown, everybody in this room, if you have a son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter in that age bracket, let me see your hands, between the ages of 4 and 14, that's a good majority of this room, all right? That is known as the most formative years of your, your child's faith development. So it's no wonder that the enemy is after your sons and daughters in the most formative years. 
That's why we've got to override secularism with faith in Jesus and God's word and the church. That's why, listen to me, we don't, at, at our Go Church campuses, we don't babysit your children and go kids and babysit your teenagers and go youth. No, we give them Jesus because Jesus is the hope of the world and we want to teach them at a young age. And when I'm done with this thought, I want you to give me a good amen. We want to teach them at a young age to build their faith life on the rock, which is Jesus, so that no matter what happens to them in life, that when life shakes them, they don't have to walk, they don't have to deconstruct. Can I get an amen? That their hope is built on Christ. And then, and then I, I see this all the time. People leave the faith because of broken trust from spiritual leaders. And I, I, I'll use air quotes here and not in a derogatory way, but you have these men and women of God that abuse their position of spiritual power, whether that's through sexual misconduct, misappropriation of funds, scandals, spiritual abuse, you name it. If I were to pass a microphone around this room, you would be shocked at the stories of people that were hurt by a spiritual leader. I'll be very careful here, but one of our staff pastors told me about one of our small groups at a campus that is happening right now during our group semester. That the conversation week number one in this group started with, so tell me a little bit about yourself and your faith background and being a part of this group. And the first two people that spoke up said, I was molested by my youth pastor as a teenager. I was abused by a pastor when I was younger. The first two conversations. Now, I know that those seem like extreme examples. But at the end of the day, when a spiritual leader, when they, when they hurt you or abuse you in some way, shape, or form, a lot of times we get angry at God and we get angry at the church. And that's the, that's the human nature within us. But listen to me. You cannot put your confidence in a man or a woman. Now, it is my heart to lead with great integrity and accountability and to lead with example. I, I tell you all the time, and I tell my family all the time, like, I want you to, f this is the words of the Apostle Paul. You can follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But, man, I am human, and it's not my plan to fail you or to fail Kimberly. I told her during the marriage conference, I was like, look, we're going to stay married until I die or Jesus comes back. And if you try to leave me, tell me where you're going because I'm going with you. Can I get an amen from somebody? Well, I wouldn't even know what to do without her, you know. It's not my plan to fail her or to fail you, but I am a human being. And I need just a moment of full disclosure here. But I got real aggravated at a moron on the, on the interstate yesterday. Can I get an amen from that? Like the humanity within me came to life by this guy that didn't know how to change lanes. I digress. Don't put your confidence in man. Put your hope and confidence in God. And then you have three internal factors of deconstruction, rather. We talked about this one, no holy fear of God. If, we, if an individual genuinely feared God in a reverent, holy, supernatural, all kind of way, the moment that they would want to walk away from God, they would be drawn to conviction with this reminder that one day, listen to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that one day we'll all stand before God. And I've told you this the last couple of Sundays because you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's your faith. What if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, my life was still better because I lived my life for God. 
My, my family's better. I'm a different person because of my faith. So even if I die and there is no God, I'm, I'm, I'm still better off. But what if you don't believe and you're wrong? And there is a God. Now, if we had this holy fear of God, that conviction would, would dr- not, not an unhealthy fear, but a holy fear would drive us to our knees in worship of this God. In submission and obedience and honor and service to this God. But when we really don't have a fear of God, then we just, it's easy to turn our, to turn our back against him. Last Sunday, I, I dove deep into a wounded heart and told you just kind of two truths about a season of sorrow. And everybody has been wounded by someone or something, all of us. Some of that goes back to the broken trust from a spiritual leader, but that's not the only wounded heart that's in the room. Some of you have a wounded heart because of a a, a parent or a, a relative that claimed to be a Christian, but they abused you verbally, physically, sexually. So, so your heart is wounded. Somebody acted like they were a Christian in front of other people, but around you, they did you wrong or mistreated you. So you've got this wounded heart. Here's two more, and we haven't talked much about these other two categories in previous weeks, and I wanted to take advantage just to talk about the woundedness of some people. Some people have a wounded heart, and they're angry at God because they're single. So they're divorced, or they've never met their future husband or their future wife, and so they're angry. Don't listen to me. If you're single, embrace your season of being single. It's better to be single and date Jesus than end up married to a loser. I'm better say that. Well, I hope you like this so far because it ain't going to get any better. (laughs) The best part of the whole message was my Spanish, and it ain't great. But also people have a wounded heart. Watch this, because we have allowed, and when I say we, I'm talking about the Big C Capital Church. But we've allowed American politics to infiltrate itself into the church. So people are hurt. Because some of you, and I love you enough to tell you the truth, but some of you and some of your friends and some of your family, they claim to be followers of Christ, but they are so mean on Facebook. Or you say hateful things to an individual that, that doesn't line up with your political party or your political views. This may shock some of you, but in heaven, there will be both Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. And it's something like, all right. All the libertarians over here, figure it out. All the Republicans over here, all the different, no, no, no. We're, gonna, we're all going to be in heaven, and we're going to sing one song. And, it, and it's, it's not the Star Spangled Banner. Now, I, lo- I love America. God bless America. Man, and she's got a lot of stuff that we got to figure out, but this is the greatest nation in the land. And one thing, JC, be careful. Just be careful. I'm talking to myself. Anybody else do that? Come on. But one thing you've got to remember is that Christianity is not nationalism. It's not patriotism. God is not pleased with your commitment to America. God is pleased with your commitment to the kingdom. And so we get online and we say things about another political party. So I got to hurry. I got a lot of content and a little bit of time. But watch this. We're coming up into an election season here. Behave. Behave. And if you want me to choose a side, I've already chosen a side. And it's the side. Did you feel that when I did that? Like a little penguin up here. Come on, somebody. 
and it's the side of King Jesus. Can I get an amen from 100 people? Okay. But then a lot of people deconstruct because they have a high digital input and low scripture input. So a great one-liner to kind of transition to really the meat of the message today would be something that I've told you in previous weeks when we've gotten to this particular internal factor. And here's the, one, the quick one line. Tweet it, Facebook it, text it. You ready? You spend too much time on Facebook and not enough time with your face in God's book. We are always online. We're scrolling through Instagram and scrolling through TikTok and scrolling through Snapchat and scrolling through Facebook because we just have to know what Johnny had for lunch. Come on. And I want you to know something. Now, I went to college and paid a lot of money to get revelation like what I'm about to share with you. Are you ready? Lean in. I hope you're taking notes today. You ready? Watch this. Not everything you read online is true. Abraham Lincoln said that. Some of you are like, really? Yes, and 84% of all statistics are made up. <laughs> Not everything you read online is true, but man, you'll take something as absolute truth. There, preach, JC. There's only one absolute truth, and that is the Word of God. And what happens is, is that we let our ideology and our theology be formed by information false information that's being spread on social media and the news. Listen, every single thing that we've ever experienced in our personal lives, every single thing that we ever will experience in our personal lives, the answer can be found in the absolute truth of God's word. God has given me and you a love letter. He's given us a roadmap, but we will spend hours hours with this high digital input. I shared this at the marriage conference on Friday night. The second leading cause of divorce right now, video games. You, you want, you want up, and I'm not being mean. Come on, man, I like Madden. And none of y'all can beat me in Madden. And I'm, I mean that. I'm, no, you could. But you want your marriage to be healed? You want your marriage to be delivered? And you got to get into God's word. Hide yourself in God's word so that you might not sin against God. Let's talk about scripture for today. Watch. Hebrews 4.12. Every campus, read this with me. Ready? One, two, three. For the word of God is alive and powerful. Pause right there. Stop right there. Because whenever we read words in the Bible like alive and powerful, just a thought. Maybe you could do it with like some, I don't know, life and power. Ready? One, two, three. For the word of God is It is sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. I've told you this repeatedly. Every time you read the Bible, you think you're reading the Bible, but the Bible is actually reading you. And anytime we talk about the Bible, I always like to talk about the Holy Bible. Because holy, the Greek word for holy means to be set apart. And the Holy Bible is not just another book. It's not just another novel or science fiction or whatever kind of book you're into. It is a holy book. And there is life and there is hope and there is joy and there is peace. And there is Jesus and there is forgiveness 
There's encouragement, there's conviction, there's teaching, there's rebuke. It's all, it's sharp, man. And it, it will cut you into pieces to trim away all the things of the world that have attached itself to you to get you to follow Christ with everything inside of you. And that, listen, I've been in ministry north of 20 years full time. And I'm telling you, almost every person that I've ever seen go through deconstruction, the overwhelming majority of people, and I'll give you a stat to show you the, the truth behind this thought, is they deconstruct because they don't read their Bible. They're not reading their Bible. Let me let you in just in, think of me however you want to think of me, but there are days I don't want to read the Bible. Just like there are days I don't want to go to the gym. But you need to know this. You can't get this without doing this. Can I get an amen from some? Whatever. But even on the days I don't want to read the Bible, it is a discipline to be practiced. And when people, when they stop reading the Bible and they let the, the information, and we are overloaded with information. And when we let the information of this world just get in our hearts and our minds, you are what you eat. You become what you consume. So if you need some kind of change in a certain area of your life, get into God's word. Can you give me a good amen? Now watch. Now, now here's, here's the evidence of the fact that people aren't reading their Bible. And this is why we're seeing deconstruction happen. During COVID-19, the American Bible Society did an annual report on the Bible. And they discovered, and forgive me for not remembering the, the head researcher's name, but he said he reread and reread and reread the data, hoping to find an error on their part. But they discovered that during COVID 19, 26 million Americans stopped reading the Bible regularly. No wonder people are leaving the faith. No wonder people are turning their heart away from God. Now, whatever, whatever you invest your time into, your, your money into, your dreams into, like whatever you invest that into, listen to me, at some point, that thing is going to perish. Outside of God, whatever you make investments into, the things of this world, it will perish or you will perish. It's like the old preachers used to say, I've done a lot of funerals and I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul trailer. Meaning you can't take it all with you. Now, that doesn't mean don't have an inheritance and leave your grandchildren a colored TV. Come on, somebody. But you can't take it with you. Whatever you invest in the things of this world, they'll, they'll perish after a while. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew 24, he says, look, heaven and earth, all of that will pass away. But my words will never fail. My words will never pass away. That means that this book, God's letter, will outlive all of us and will last far longer than we do. So there's a lot of mistrust in the church and in spiritual leadership. But let me tell you this, and this will be the next 15 minutes here. You can trust the Bible. And if you'll just read the Bible, if you'll eat God's word, and it'll change you. Kimberly and I, for years, we uh, were student pastors. And some of our students are either on staff with us now or they're still in the church and grown and some play in our worship team and serve at other campuses and it's a joy but every graduating class every senior class and all those years that we did student ministry we would give them a bible as a gift every year 
And in the front page of that Bible, we would write these words. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And it is so true. And what happens over time, for whatever reason, we allow the things of this world to keep us from God's word, and then we deconstruct and think, well, I can't trust the Bible. I'm going to give you a few reasons here as to why you can trust the Bible. Here are a few reasons the Bible can be trusted. A little bit of uh, disclosure here. Two thoughts with this. Number one, it's going to be a little bit of an apologetics conversation, a little more teaching. If you'll give me a chance to yell at you, I'll pick one of you out and I'll yell at you, all right? The second thing is this. I didn't do all of the research. Now, I did, I did quite a bit of research, but Pastor Rick Warren, who recently retired from Saddleback Church, and Pastor Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, I got a lot of content from those two guys, so I just want to tell you that up front. But I think what you're going to see here, some ways that you can trust the Bible, I hope will allow you the desire to just get back in the Word. So let me give you a few. The first, the first reason that you can trust the Bible is because it is historically accurate. Now here's what I hear a lot about people that read the Bible, especially when they get into like the Old Testament, is, well, I don't believe all the stories are true. And how can a guy be swallowed by a big fish live in the belly of that fish for three days and then be spit up and, and just go about his business. I don't believe that that's humanly possible. And you know what my response to that would be? Neither do I. That's not humanly possible. You know what else isn't humanly possible? A virgin birth and Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's only supernaturally possible. Yeah. So you... You've got to understand that things that you read, they're not humanly possible. They are only possible by God himself. So don't just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you think are true and false and right and wrong. The psalmist said it like this, for the word of the Lord is what? Both right and true. So listen to me. If it's in the book, it's true. And we are finding more and more historical evidence to back up the stories in Scripture. You take any, any historical document, how do you validate the historical accuracy of that document? What are, what are the, the standards of history to validate its accuracy? It always comes down to three, to three points. Were there eyewitness accounts? An eyewitness account goes a long way in the validity of a document. Was it recorded and copied with great accuracy and care? And then are there archaeological findings are their discoveries. I don't have a lot of time to spend here, but I'll, I'll talk about these three. Just go to the New Testament. Watch. The New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those were real people that really walked this earth with Jesus. They weren't writing about a Messiah they had heard about. They were writing about a Messiah that they lived with. They saw firsthand the miracle signs and wonders. So they wrote out of their own experience. Then, was it recorded and copied with extreme care? It is a myth that the Bible and its transcription is inaccurate. Do you know who God chose? The group of people that God chose to transcribe the ancient text? The Jewish people. That's not by happenstance. The Jewish people are the most meticulous group of people on the face of the planet. And they did so, the transcription of ancient texts, with great care. So watch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. 
when the Jews transcribed the Torah, they didn't transcribe it word for word. They transcribed it letter for letter. And they would start with the middle letter and then work forward and backwards to validate its accuracy. And then, is there archaeological confirmation? By a show of hands, has anybody ever been to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C.? If you, that breaks my heart. It needs to be, if you're, if you're a Christian, you need two things. You need a passport. Because if God says, go to the ends of the earth, you'll be like, well, I don't have a passport. So go get your passport. Come on, somebody. And you need to go to the Bible Museum. Three or four stories of archaeological findings. It's magnificent. I'll tell you a story at the end of the message, if, if the Lord reminds me of it, that will just really connect to your heart. You go to the Bible Museum, and there are all types of findings to back up the historical evidence of Scripture. I mean, you go back to the late 1940s and 50s, and some shepherd teenage boys running along the seashore, they find the Dead Sea Scrolls. This, this is just the 1940s and 50s. These are some of the earliest ancient texts showing us the validity of the Old Testament. What they found in 1946 and 1947 was fragments of every single book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. Really? It's magnificent. And archaeologists every day, they're still finding, they're still finding evidence to back up what happened in the Bible. A second, y'all don't act impressed, by the way. You kind of, like, well, that's great. Secondly, the Bible is scientifically accurate. If you had a dollar, this isn't a political statement, by the way. It's just true. If you had a dollar for every time you heard in the last two years, trust the science, you'd have $22. Trust the science, trust the science, trust. You know the problem with that statement? Science changes. Science evolves. And guess what? Thank God. I'm glad that they don't treat tuberculosis today like they did 50, 60, 70 years ago. Thank God that science evolved. But truth never changes. Does that make sense? Psalm 148, let me give you a couple verses here. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command. And when he issued his command, when God spoke, the world existed. He set them in place forever and ever, and his decree will never be deconstructed. No matter how much man tries, science actually proves that God is real and his word can be trusted. 1861, you look at the French Academy of Science. They wrote this, the 51 undisputable scientific facts that prove the Bible is wrong. Incontrovertible, meaning these are proven absolute. We found 51 reasons that you can't trust the Bible. That was 1861. Today, 2022, all 51 have been converted. They've all been disputed, and all 51 actually validate the Scripture. Here's something that people believed for thousands of years. And some of y'all believe this. With your little Netflix conspiracy shows. (laughs) Well, I laid a map out. Thank you so much for getting that joke, by the way. Have you ever told a joke and you wonder, is it going to land? I just really, I just want to pause and say thank you for receiving that. <laughs> the earth is flat. It wasn't until Galileo and Columbus who theorized that the earth is round. But if you go 
2,600 years ago, in God's word, the prophet Isaiah is recorded as saying what? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The Hebrew word for circle is sphere, where we get our English word globe. Scientifically accurate. Here's another one. that This is actually a profound driving thought during the time of the Bible being written. Is that the earth had to be held up some way. That the earth couldn't just be suspended above nothingness. So, so the Greeks believe that Atlas, a giant, just put earth on his back and held the earth up. I'm not being comical. I'm telling you the truth. The Egyptians believed that the earth was suspended by five pillars and just hung into, into orbit. Again, not trying to be funny, the Hindus believe that earth sits on the back of two giant elephants who are standing on the back of one giant sea turtle who's swimming on the back of one giant sea monster. Listen to me, we all believe something, but if you read your Bible chronologically, right, one of the oldest books of the Bible is the book of Job. What did Job say about this? Job said, he spreads out the northern sky over empty space. He suspends the earth over what? How did Job know that? Maybe Job didn't write the Bible. Maybe Job just held the pen. Here's another one. Oh, well, the number of stars can be counted. The number of stars can be counted. 150 B.C. It was mentioned that you could count 1,022 stars in the sky. 150 A.D. It was then determined that they missed four stars, and there was actually 1,026 stars in the galaxy. This afternoon at lunch, Google, how many stars are there? Google will tell you 200 billion trillion stars. Jeremiah said long ago, Jeremiah 33, 22, the stars of the sky, finish this thought. Scientifically, the Bible is accurate. Let me give you a few more. Watch this. The Bible is thematically unified. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a constant theme, God's love story, and no matter what people tell you, there are no contradictions. Questions, no contradictions. They'll make this slide larger so you can see it. I've shared this with you in the past. Let me run through it real quick. The Bible is a collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 1,189 chapters with 31,103 verses. 40 different authors wrote the Bible. Farmers, fishermen, Prophets, priests, kings, tax collectors. Come on. When the IRS gets anointed, can I get an amen from somebody? <laughs> Over a span of 1,500 years, it was written in three original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. Yet when you take all of those authors and all of those subjects throughout all of those years and you read the Bible, it reads like one continuous story. How? How is, okay, maybe if it was one guy in one year, but 40 authors, 1,500 plus years, three languages, three continents, and I said this a moment ago about Job, but it's because man held the pen, but God wrote the word. Come on, church. I want to show you something. If you give me a few minutes here, I want you to see this. This may be the most profound image 
that you've ever seen about the thematically unified piece of scripture. And I'm not exaggerating this. A couple weeks ago on Facebook, this did pop up on my timeline. It was Johnny's lunch and then this image. I tried to come full circle. I knew I shouldn't have done that. You're not ready for that. Look at this. They'll make this large. I want you to see this. This is every cross reference in your Bible. So a cross reference is where it was mentioned somewhere else. It's also mentioned here as well. Take a picture of this. Now watch. 63,779 cross references are in the Bible. The white bar across the bottom here, along the bottom, represents every Bible chapter from the book of Genesis chapter 1, that's the first chapter, the first, first book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, the last book, last chapter. Does that make sense? These colored lines represent the references distance from the other. How? I went in my office in between the messages, and the Holy Spirit just reminded me of this. And I don't say that with, you know, anything other than humility. Like, I really felt the Lord just remind me. Psalm 22, one cross reference here. Psalm 22, the psalmist David is prophesying and predicting the crucifixion of Jesus. Watch. Oh, I feel the, I feel the Holy Spirit right now. He's prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus before crucifixion was ever a way of murder. And what does he say? In that prophecy, he says that he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then in Matthew and in Mark, the cross references, it's Jesus hanging on a cross. And Jesus yells out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does it mean? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I don't have time to preach about the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. But all throughout the Bible, you see these cross-references. How? Second Timothy says it like this, that all Scripture is what? God breathed. God spoke to the heart of man. And everything God wanted in the Bible was for a reason, for a purpose. And that Scripture, when you pick up that Bible, it's used for teaching. We like that. For rebuking, I don't like that. Correcting, I think I'll stop reading. People start to deconstruct and training in righteousness. Are, are you enjoying this today? Come on, not for my affirmation, but just for the Lord. Come on. I don't ever try to stand up here to try to act like I'm smarter than I am. But I want you to, I want you to know that you're a part of a church that we're going to preach the Bible we're going to preach the Bible, and I want you to fall in love with God's Word. Give me five more minutes here, and I'm done. I promise you. Two more thoughts. The Bible has survived all attacks. Every attack that has ever come against the Bible, every attack that will ever come against the Bible, the Scripture will remain. Do you know that the Bible is the most stolen book in the history of all books? I love it. Can, like a thief steals a Bible. To God be the glory. Now read it. And keep it. I have this thought, and I hope that it makes sense to you, but why is it that the Bible 
what, let, me, let me give you this thought, and then I'll share what I'm thinking. Why is the Bible the most despised, denied, disputed, deconstructed, debated, and destroyed book ever? Why, why is it that, that people that don't even believe in God, they're atheists, when they get really mad, they'll still use God's name in vain? Why is that? Why is it when people play golf and they hit a bad slice, they're like, GD? I, I've played a lot of golf and I've hit a lot of bad slices. I've never said GD, but I've also never said, oh, Allah! Oh, Mohammed! Why are, they, why are they trying to ban the name of God and the word of God? Why? Why are people trying to destroy it and burn it and bury it and hide it? Again, it's secular ideology because if you, if you pick up that book, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is alive and it is active. And watch, and when you start to read it, something happens Something happens in you and something happens to you because you're introduced to the God who created you. Woo! Watch. The great, a brilliant man, by the way, brilliant man, the French philosopher Voltaire. Watch what he said. Within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. The only thing that's been forgotten is this quote. The Bible will always Stand. First Peter 1, watch this. Similar to what we read earlier, cross-reference here. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Here's a couple thoughts for you. I'll give you one final thought after this. So am I going to attack God's word? Or will I live by it? Will I deconstruct it or will I defend it? Will I follow the world or will I follow the word? One more thought here as to why you can trust the Bible. And listen, and you and only you can test this one. But the Bible has life-changing power. This is why the enemy is after your Bible. And watch. And this is why the enemy is after your calendar. Because if the devil can't make you bad, he'll just make you busy. We put the Bible down and we get on other things. And one day of missing reading the Bible turns into two. And two days into a month and a month into a year. And life still comes and storms still come. Now I'm not telling you that the moment you pick up the Bible that all of your problems will disappear. But I am telling you that the moment you pick up the Bible, you're reminded that you never have to face one problem alone. That you'll find God in every page. And you'll find God in every situation. What did Jesus say? Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 2. He says, if, if, you, if you hold on to my teaching, where are the teachings of Jesus found? If you hold on to my teaching, you really are my disciple. I love you enough to tell you this, but if we walk around saying that we're a disciple and saying that we're a Christian, but we don't read this book, we're only fooling ourselves. 
He says, if you just hold on to my teaching, then you're my disciple. And you will know the truth because this is the only absolute truth. And the truth will set you free. Set you free. One quick story about the Bible Museum. I'm so grateful I didn't forget this. When the Bible Museum was created, Go Church became an initial founding sponsor. Kimberly and I were living in Maryland at that time and pastoring that campus, which is a campus now. And so we were 20, 20 miles from the Museum of the Bible, and, and we gave some money. It wasn't a significant amount of money, but at that time the church was smaller, and it, it felt like such a privilege to be able to give. Kimberly always reminds me that when she shops at Hobby Lobby that it's a spiritual experience <laughs> because David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby, all of those historical artifacts are his personal collection and he donated all of them. So she's like, I'm just doing the work of the kingdom by shopping at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) First time I ever walked in there, I was overwhelmed, man. Floor after floor, there's this one enclosed case with what they call the forbidden Bible. And I don't remember the name of the king or the specific date range, but they had written out the Bible and distributed it across the land. And then the king read in the Ten Commandments that the one Ten Commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, that they forgot the word not. So every Bible in distribution said, thou shalt commit adultery. So uh, he went wild and and tried to figure out how do we collect all. They were able to collect every single Bible that was in print at that time They put it in a pile and burned them. They kept one. It's at the Bible Museum. But then you get to one floor, and it's this room, I mean, completely surrounded with books, empty books, but they start with bright yellow in color, and then they move all the way to a dark brown, almost black. And this room represents every nation, every tongue, every tribe, across the world that yellow has not one translation of the Bible in their village not even the New Testament all the way to countries like America that we've got stacks on stacks of Bibles and on our iPhone and I was overwhelmed at the number of people around the globe looking at these yellow yellow Bibles represented that they don't even have a copy of the scripture and then right in the middle of this room there are are televisions on each side and and it's B-roll footage, real-time footage of of missionaries dropping into these villages and bringing boxes of Bibles. And these people are standing for hours, hours in line, just like we do for an iPhone to get a Bible. And they'll open up the Bible and the people are respectful, but they're fighting because they want a copy. And they'll grab that Bible and they'll kiss it. And they'll hold it. You can think of me however you want to think of me, but almost every morning that I read the Bible, I, I hold my Bible. I kiss, kiss my Bible. Because this Bible changed my life. 
the God of this Bible saved my soul. And I don't read it just so I can work on a sermon. And I don't read it just so I can check off some religious to-do list. It changed my life. Saved my soul. We just take this word for granted, and I have too. I'm, I'm not standing up here fake crying, trying to pretend like I'm something I'm not, man. But there is just, and you know what? Listen to me. This is the final thing I'll say probably. People will deconstruct this word, and they'll talk about this word, and they'll try to find errors in this word and contradictions in this word, and, and, and. And you know what I say to people when they come to me with all the things they think they have found? sure argue it all but what you can't argue is my testimony (laughs) argue it all but you'll stand there till you're blue in the face and you'll lose that argument 100 times out of 100 times and you make me try to think that this life, this power, this word didn't change me. I'm different. And I just want you to experience that same kind of love and grace. I've told you this before. If God can save JC, man, God can save anybody. Anybody. Revelation 12, 11. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's transition the campuses to their campus pastors. I just want to give you a second here. Would the Holy Spirit speak to your heart today? And what's your next step? For some of you, your next step is just to open up your Bible today. Kiss your Bible today. Hold your Bible today. Read your Bible today. When people come to me after a a, a gathering and say, Oh, Pastor JC, you changed my life. I didn't change your life. I just pointed you to the God of the Bible who changed your life. And I want to do that today. If you need a miracle in any area of your life, relationally, emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, the God of the Bible... The God of his holy word, he'll meet you when you get face to face with him.